Well, good morning, Santa Ramon Valley Saints. How are you? So good to be here with you. That was a blessing, that song that they just sang. Wow. I've heard that before, but that was powerfully done. Well done. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much. We are very, very grateful people today when we think of our wonderful Savior. Think of the fact that as we sang in the first hymn that we really do have a life worth living. There's a purpose in life because of you. We want to just thank you for all that you are to us and want to pray you just your blessing now as we would open up your word and look at some wonderful nuggets of truth that are found in a number of scripture verses. And we just would ask you to help us focus, pray for the liberty of the Holy Spirit, and we just pray that we'll have really ears to hear. And we'll be willing, Lord, um, to leave here changed, different, um, more committed and even more in love with you than when we walked in this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Job. Old Testament. We're going to be doing a little bit of uh, looking through the scriptures today. So we're not going to just stay in one text. I remember when I first became a Christian, Job is in the Old Testament just before the book of Psalms. I remember when I first became a believer and there was one of these messages where People were having you look through the Bible, various passages, and it seemed like a lot of the verses of Scripture were in the Minor Prophets. And somebody would say, turn to Micah chapter 3, and I was like, Micah. And I wouldn't, uh, I was looking over to the person next to me, well, it's page 1189 on his Bible, so maybe it's 1189 on my Bible, only to realize we had different Bibles. So when all else failed, table of contents will work, and hopefully we're getting skilled and versed in our scriptures well enough that we, if we've been around a while, we know where these books are. We're mostly in the New Testament, except for now and in Genesis in a second. A couple weeks ago, my daughter came to our, to my job because it was, I think they call it uh, father-daughter or father-son employee day. It was a couple weeks ago, maybe one of your kids went with you to your job, but my 12-year-old came with me and listened to a couple of phone calls and after on the 911 and after that I thought that's probably enough for her so I put her on a computer just to tinkle around for a little bit before we, I went home and she went to one of her favorite web pages jigzone.com it's kind of a cool site if you enjoy doing puzzles because if you go to this website it has all of these different puzzles and you can click on if you want it to be 100 pieces or 200 pieces or a thousand pieces and it You can click on the different shapes if you wanted to have shapes, which I would like to be like that, or if you want shapes like that. And so she was clicking onto this, and this other woman, my daughter's Katie, and this other lady who's probably a good 40 years or 50 years older than Katie, whose name also is Katie, came up and said, what are you doing? And she got hooked on it. And the next day said to me, as soon as she came home from work, she said, I clicked onto this and was doing puzzles, so... Thinking of puzzles, though, reminds me of kind of the subject matter that I want to address today because it is puzzling to many of us. And maybe you're in this situation this morning on this question of why does a good God allow suffering? That can maybe be a puzzling question to you. And if you turn in your Bible to Job chapter 10, if you have any familiarity with just the first couple of chapters of this book, this man went through, and it's an understatement, really words don't express, an incredible amount of suffering. If you have some time maybe today, if you're not too familiar with 
the whole context of it, it's a very fascinating read. And Job expresses a number of things throughout this book, but at this point that I just want to pick up where he says in verse 1 of chapter 10, he's lost his loved ones. He's lost uh, much of his property. His health is now suffering. And he says, I loathe my very life. Therefore, I will give free rein to my complaint and speak out in the bitterness of my soul. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? Very, very strong words from Job. And through the course of the, of the book, he sees differently. He gets a a renewed vision and uh, perspective on the subject of suffering. But right here, he's being incredibly honest. And I think God appreciates when we're honest with him. But it's difficult because we know this isn't the case and what Job was thinking at this very point. But it's this age-old question that you probably have heard or you've asked yourself, why does a good God And for those who maybe wonder if there is a God, if there is a God, why does he allow suffering? People want to know in our world of pain, where is God? What I often have heard over the course of the years is if he is good and compassionate, why is life sometimes so incredibly tragic? People will say, has your God lost control? Or if he is in control, And we believe that this morning if we know Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. We believe that he's in control. What is he trying to do to me? As Job asked in this question in Job chapter 10. What is he trying to do in others? Maybe what is he trying to do in our city, in our state, in our nation, if we want to broaden it. Or our world for that matter. And if you're familiar with the scriptures and you look through these pages and you read account after account after account in the Word of God, we discover that the Scriptures paint a picture of a God who can do anything He chooses to do at any time according to His will. He controls everything that happens. This is what the Scriptures will teach us if you go through them. He's in charge. Now, sometimes... His creation doesn't like that, doesn't like that conclusion, doesn't like that outcome. But that's what the scriptures teach. Our God is a sovereign God who's in control. Sometimes the scriptures show us, and we can look at accounts of this, or we can look at accounts of this in history. He has acted in his mercy, and he has performed miracles for his people that just cause us to bow down and worship and say, what an awesome God we've got. When he's done that type of deliverance, we can obviously see that when we go through the Old Testament, see how he delivered the Israelites from so much. And for that matter, in the New Testament, the miracles, the way that he worked in people's lives and the way he's working in your life, how he's been merciful to you. I'm sure in my life, more times than I realize now that I'm 43, I can just imagine I'm going to find out in heaven 
There have been so many occasions, and you're going to find this too, when God has been merciful to you. You may not even been conscious of the situation, but he was. He, he saved you from some trial or from some trauma or some distress. But on the flip side of that, there are other times God in his all-knowing wisdom has chosen to do nothing. He has allowed tragedy to take place. Sometimes he lets the tar- us be the targets of evil people. Bad genes that we've inquired from our family members. Dangerous viruses. I'm sure we've all heard about SARS by now. Natural disasters. And even what sometimes people would say are tragic accidents. Sometimes God allows that to happen. Now, this message, to be perfectly honest, was very easy for me to give because this came very quickly over the last uh, week or so because of a tragedy we experienced at our home church in Fairhaven, where a week ago last Wednesday, one of our young people, a 17-year-old um, senior named Paul Sharp, was climbing up at Mount or up at uh, Yosemite and fell approximately about 50 feet initially and then another 100 feet near Yosemite Falls and was uh, killed on impact. And this was a young man, 17, to be a senior or was a senior to graduate in June and um, was someone who professed to know Christ. I heard this information when I was on the phone. I called my wife just to talk to her about something incredibly trivial, as many of our conversations are, and she was weeping on the phone. And I said, what, what's wrong? Our, one of our daughters was on a missions trip in Mexico, and immediately I thought of that. And then she went to say, this young man, friends of ours, this, the couple that we know, that their son, their oldest son, had died. And if you're like me, you long for some way to be able to put together an answer at that kind of a time when you hear that kind of news, don't you? What is God doing? Not necessarily why, but just what does he want to do? This question of suffering. And I suggest from Scripture, if you were to put this together as a puzzle, that there's four areas in the time we've got, and we've got to go kind of quickly into how we can describe or understand this whole question as to why God allows this to happen. And the first I'd like to suggest, and I'm uh, indebted to back to the Bible, a booklet that I read about 10 years ago that had some of these points that stuck with me. And the first is to alert us to the problem of sin. Now, you think about it this morning. Imagine a world, imagine our world that we live in without any pain. Think about it. My wife's been having a migraine for about the last week. And... She suffers with those I have, for as long as I've known her. Usually they're not too bad, but this hasn't been a great, great week. Imagine for those of you migraine sufferers, if you didn't have to experience the pain of a migraine. Any migraine sufferers here? Unless any of us, and I haven't, but I know if you're from living with someone who does, if, if you suffer from migraines, that's an incredible headache. I mean, our headaches that we have don't compare to the migraine sufferers. Imagine a world without any backache, where there'd be no backache this morning. No heartaches. Broken hearts. There wouldn't be any more broken hearts if we lived in a world without any pain. 
But think about it. There would be no sensations to alert you of a bad tooth. There'd be no sensations to tell you that you've got a broken bone. Or as I found out a few days ago, a finger that needs to be removed from the oven grill. And you know, it only took me about a half of a second to realize, pull that finger off. And ran to the kitchen sink and turned on the water, you know, and it was bubbling up, you know, like a big piece of chewing gum. Sorry, I hope that's not too descriptive. You get a burn, you get infection, and if it goes over much of your body, that can often be a a, a fatal injury. So God in his wisdom has allowed us to experience pain, even in the ways that I've described. And as much as we hate to admit it today, I think if we're all thinking clearly, and I trust we're thinking clearly and rationally this morning, we would say that pain often serves a good purpose, that there is value behind it. But it's the cause of the misery rather than the agony itself that's the real problem. And that's in this whole subject of there's something wrong with the world, isn't there? I'd like you to go back to your Bibles. This is probably very familiar territory, but let's just flip back to Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to pick passages of Scripture that aren't going to have you running, wondering where in the world is this book he's mentioning. Genesis chapter 3, first book. Just to get the context of where this really all starts, that there's something wrong with the world that there is a problem with sin that we've got to come to grips with. Genesis chapter 3, let's just start with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it, or you will die. Verse 16. We know what took place in between those verses. The devil tempted. Eve went ahead. Adam ate. The consequences, as we read in verse 16, God speaking, says to the woman, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days, or toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And lastly, in this section, verse 23. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the, gardens of, Eden, of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life.
Uh, it's a sobering passage of scripture, isn't it? Wonderful, wonderful fellowship they were experiencing with God. The devil comes on the scene and tempts them and they, they fall victim guilty to his uh, charge and to what he was telling them to do to question God's goodness and go ahead and eat of this one from this one tree tells. And they did. And they experienced all this pain, which being descendants from them, we experience as well. And they were driven out of this very special place of being in the very presence of God because of sin. Because we know that our God is a holy and righteous God. And he cannot, even though in our world we excuse it so much, he cannot allow sin in his presence. And so this is what takes place for them in Genesis chapter 3. And maybe if you read this passage or maybe you've come across people before who will ask you this question, couldn't, couldn't God have created a world where nothing went wrong? Well, we didn't have this type of account in the scripture. Couldn't God have made a world where people never would make, as what took place here, a bad choice or hurt another person? But the problem with that is, if you continue to think about this whole argument, it is as we would have been created, God could have created us if he wanted to, to be like that doll that maybe most of you ladies, I assume, had when you were growing up, where you could just pull a string or you could just touch it in a certain way and it will then say when you do that command, I love you. Or it does whatever you tell it to do just by pushing a button kind of in a robotic kind of a way, kind of in a mechanical way. God could have created us like that. But he created us with the ability to choose. Those who would choose to either love him, embrace him as their creator and as their father, and to receive their, his son as their savior, or we would be the people that would hopefully not be, and I trust there's no one in this room today who would be those who would say, I want to reject I want to reject your offer of love. But God had made it possible that we can choose. Adam and Eve did in this context. Sin's entrance into the world, Genesis chapter 3, is never, it's never ever the way that God intended it to be. But in his wisdom, he knew what was going to be the outcome and he made provision for it. And we're thankful for that today, aren't we? Something is definitely wrong in the world. And a very close follow-up to that is something is definitely wrong with God's creatures. As someone has said, as free and sin-infected, pretty descriptive, sin-infected creatures, people have and continue to make bad choices. It wasn't very long after this that Cain chose to kill Abel, his brother. Homicide, very quickly in the Old Testament. And it's really been downhill ever since. You look at how the choices that man made after what took place in the garden and a lot of choices were bad because we're sin infected. Look what happened. Just Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery. And then in that whole account of that account in Genesis, then you have Potiphar's wife trying to accuse Joseph of raping her. A false charge. But people making bad choices and lies and deceit. It all followed on because there's something wrong with God's creatures because the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
In addition, though, to us as human beings, there's also something wrong with some of the fallen angels, isn't there? Suffering is also caused by Satan and the demons. Job, if you if you know this account, the incredible tragedy that this man experienced was because of a satanic attack. He had to go to God for permission for it, but it was satanic in its nature. Paul said in the New Testament that there was, remember, a thorn in his flesh. And he said it was a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, we don't know exactly what that, that thorn in his flesh was, and there's a lot of ideas about that. And maybe somewhere down the road when we're in heaven, we're going to actually get to ask Paul, what was that, by the way? We've been very curious about that. But the point was, is whatever it was, it was from the devil. It was from a demon. He says, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Well, you say, yeah, I can understand that there really is something wrong with the world. You don't have to turn on, turn on the television for long or the newspaper or whatever else to see there's something wrong with the world. And yeah, I can even accept that there's something wrong with other people too. I see that. I see there's a lot of problems with God's creatures. But the, where you've got to narrow that right down is, are you willing to say today, there's also something wrong with me. There's also something wrong with me. And that is incredibly hard. Maybe you're not at this place any longer, but there might have been a time where this was incredibly hard for you to admit that there is something wrong with me, that I'm not perfect, that it isn't always somebody else's fault for what goes wrong, but it is sometimes mine. Sometimes suffering comes as a direct consequence of our sin. Sometimes it's because of our sin. A lot of times I see it working and I could tell you a lot of stories about myself, but there's not enough time about the choices I've made sometimes that have been wrong and things that I've done over my life. But I see this at work. A lot of the problems that people get into, the trouble they get into, this is because of wrong choices that they've made. Because they're sinners. And here's the thing. In this problem that we have and how we sin and how we suffer sometimes because of our sin, it really boils down to the fact that it is, it's in two areas here. Either you're a Christian this morning and God as your father wants to discipline you and you're suffering because of the discipline of a God who loves you as your father or you're suffering in your sin right now because God as your judge is wanting to get your attention and bring you to his son. So you're, there's, we're only in two categories, one or two. It's not five or six or seven or eight or a dozen. It's either God is your father today or at the moment, God is your judge who one day is going to judge you and how you've lived your life and what you've done with his son. Let's flip uh, from Genesis and go all the way back into the New Testament now to Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is toward the back, kind of before Peter, before James, and then Hebrews. And let's go to Hebrews chapter 12. If you're a believer this morning, and you just love the Savior, then you have a father who wants to correct you. As opposed to a judge who wants to judge you. Now, if you're a Christian, look at Hebrews chapter 12, and this is very much applicable to us. Verse 5. The writer says, And have you forgotten the, that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Enduring hardship is discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Verse 9, Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Whatever the reasons, directly or indirectly, for pain and suffering, God wants us to see what the big picture of it is for us as his children. And that he's allowing whatever that suffering is in your life right now for a purpose. And he may be allowing this in your life in disciplining you as his son right now because of something that you're doing that he wants changed. There may be some sin. And that could be a reason why he's doing that. But another reason why God allows for suffering, in addition to alert us just to the problem of sin that could be in our lives and why we need to keep very short accounts with God on this is that he wants to direct us to himself. I'd like you to now flip back a little bit and go to the Second Corinthians chapter 1. This is just a few books back, going back toward Genesis, that direction. But we're in the New Testament, Second Corinthians chapter 1. So we got the second piece of the puzzle now. The first piece is to alert us. The second piece is he wants to direct us. In 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 and 9, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we have despaired even of life. That's pretty bad. It was that bad. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But notice, notice this but. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. This is, this is such a key, key principle for us to understand. That one of the reasons why God allows for suffering is he wants to remind us that all our adequacy is found in him. And that whatever we're enduring, whatever that suffering is today, whether it's the suffering of a lost job, or it's the suffering of health, or it's the suffering of a besetting and struggling sin, or it's the suffering of a family member that's not walking close to the Lord, somebody that you love who's unsaved, whatever it is, you fill it in. God wants you to realize that your adequacy, your trust must be in him and not in yourselves. You know, when a person turns away from God, and this is the funny thing, isn't it? 
When a person turns away from God, suffering often gets the blame. But at the same time, flip the coin, suffering also gets the credit when people describe what redirected their lives and helped them to see life more clearly and cause a relationship with God to grow. And I have seen people who, when the, the heat's really come on, you know, there's that phrase, when you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. And I've seen people, when the heat is on, they just, because they haven't got their, their roots deep, they just lash out against God. Hopefully only for a short time before they realize that, God, you're wanting to bring me back to you. And maybe in the honesty that sometimes comes out that a lot of times maybe you've been kind of deceiving yourselves or you've been deceived to realize, you know what? I needed something. God needed to get my attention to bring me back to himself because I really wasn't walking close to him. I really was trusting in my own abilities. And in a sense, the way I lived my life, was I in the word of God each day? Was I nourishing on that spiritual food? Was I in prayer? Was I showing that I needed to cling to him? For every hour, on every hour that I live, and if the person was to say, no, not really, I was living pretty independent of God, then God in his mercy and his wisdom, and because he cares so much for us, says I need to do something to get their attention, to cause some pain, some suffering that's going to wake up that person. And God is very good, and he's a good father for doing that for us in that way. Second Corinthians chapter 12, same book, let's just go to the 12th chapter of 2 Corinthians. Our independence and pride is one of our secret sins. Conceit. Paul says in chapter 12, verse 7, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations that was given to me, and we just talked about this, and here's the passage where he said it, a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about all my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Now, this is in the inspired word of God. Paul is telling the truth of how he really felt when in this situation. Now, I don't know if all of us could actually utter those exact same words that Paul just did and really mean it. He says he delights in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. Not because he's morbid. Not because he has some kind of a desire in life to experience pain and all of these kind of things, but because he knows what the outcomes are of it. Because then he says, for when I am weak, then I am strong. It's a, it's a wonderful character trait today if you say to somebody, I am weak, but I've got a God who's strong. And I need to look to him when I get out of the bed in the morning and I need to look to him when I lay down at night. And I need to have that kind of childlike trust and dependence on him like a brand new baby does on his or her mother. That's what we need. We don't need to be like those who say, I can do it my way. I can do it on my own. I can go to God now and then when I need him. We need him every hour. 
We really do, don't we? God wants us, and Paul is saying this, he wants us to trust him and he wants us in our understanding so that when the storms come, like for this godly family who lost their son, when the storms come, they're not crushed, but they're still trusting the Lord. We went over to their house on uh, two days afterwards in the evening. And, you know, it's one of those things, and you've probably been in that situation before, but you, you go over rather than phone in advance. They weren't answering the phone, too many phone calls. And you go over and you knock on the door, and they answer the door. And, you know, what do you do? What, what do you say? What do you say to uh, a parent, a husband, a wife, a mother, and a father? And we'll talk a bit about that in the few minutes we've got, what you maybe can say. But what was encouraging was, is in the hour or so we were there, and I wondered if we stayed too late, somebody once said, when you have to go visit somebody in that situation, leave so that they wish you would stay, and don't stay so long that they wonder when you'll leave. <laughs> and I was very conscious of that. That's been ingrained in me, that you just don't go and stay and want them to start serving you food and everything else. But you just stay long enough to somehow let them know that you, that you love them, that you care for them, that you're praying for them, and you don't even have to say much of that. You can say it in your tears, and you can say it in your hugs. But in talking to them, I'm hearing the, the mother, Shelly Sharp, say, God is awesome. What God was doing in the last 48 hours in this situation. Now, to somebody who doesn't understand this and doesn't know Jesus Christ and understand how God is just so great and so incredible and his grace is sufficient, this must seem like bizarre language. God is awesome. And she went again to just account, account after account. And I'm there and I'm just like being encouraged from listening to a woman who's just lost her son. It doesn't really make sense, naturally speaking. But we've got a supernatural God who does and works in ways we can't figure out. But the encouraging thing is, and as I've been in touch with them since, and if you've been in this situation before, you know that you can endure what is, if you'd like, the worst in life because we know that this present life isn't all that there is. Peggy Lee sang that song, and I don't remember much of it. It was a very depressing song. and This tells my age, and I really wasn't a Peggy Lee fan. But I remember this song. Is that all there is? And this, this song just kind of just goes on and on. And it's just such an incredibly depressing song because basically she comes to this conclusion. You know, we're going to dance and we're going to do this and that. And I think that's kind of the context of the song. But I just remember that line. Is that all there is? And, that's, and if you don't know Christ today, that is all there is on this earth. And then there's a promise of, a, of an impending judgment which should wake us up. But then we have the, the song, the hymn that says, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Amen. Totally two different songs with totally two different perspectives because of Jesus Christ. And then somehow we know in all of this that we have a sovereign God as Christians who is standing over all of human history, which includes your life here today. And He's, and he's in His marvelous wisdom. He's weaving it all together in a way that's going to bring honor and glory to his son. Bill McDonald, when he was speaking at the uh, next Sunday service for the Fairhaven family, which really, because we're a spiritual family, 
And this is a spiritual family for, to the San Ramon Valley Bible Chapel. You're, you're saints. There's a love and an affection here. And if one of yours in this fellowship were to, was to go just like that, you can imagine there's grieving. And he gave a message on comfort. And he said something that really was very, very simple, but very profound. Nonetheless, he said, God was not asleep on Wednesday, April 23rd. And this is the comforting thing that we have. God is not asleep. Nothing happens in your life or in mine that catches him off guard, surprises him. Breaking news and God has to tune in to find out what it is. He knows what it is. He allowed it. And when you and I have that kind of dependence on God, there's just tremendous comfort from not needing to be fearful. I was on a plane and I, uh, to San Diego this week where I was working on some of this message. And I thought, well, you know, I used to fly all the time to Ireland and back. And I didn't really mind it, but I don't really like to fly as much now. And I'm kind of one of those uh, passengers where I'm listening to the sound of the engine. And I'm conscious of the uh, elevation. And if there's any turbulence, it's like, you know, the hands go a little bit firmer on the onto the um, seat area there. And I thought, you know what? Well, the worst thing that can happen is if I don't make it, I hope Cindy would have called Adel and tell him that I'm not going to be here this Sunday. So there's, there's just a simple trust to say, my days and your days, I really believe, are numbered. And that's why the scripture says, teach us to number our days. When God in his wisdom is going to take us, he will. In the meantime, in the meantime, if we know him, how we should be all the more busy about his business, being involved in the work of his kingdom. Quickly, just two more as we wrap up here. I want to finish at 1230. We, also, something that God allows us, he allows us to be shaped. He shapes us by allowing us to suffer. Coaches like the phrase, and you've heard it. It's kind of repetitive now. No pain, no gain. Easy to say. Another thing to experience and to practice, isn't it? Now, I enjoy, and I know a number of you do here, too. I enjoy jogging, and I enjoy the amount of weights I can lift. Today, I think I pressed 500 pounds. Uh, no, that was 50 pounds. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just, just seeing if any of you are listening there. I, was, I thought I heard a gasp. Yeah. You know, there's days, there's days like I'm sure you experience, you'd rather not. You'd rather not jog. You'd rather not exercise. You don't want to sweat. You don't want the pain. You don't want the stiff joints. You'd rather, on my break, I go to the gym because it's right by our, uh, where I work. There's other days I think, you know, I'd really love to go to mom and dad's refrigerator right now. And I'd love to just rate it because they seem to buy every sweet that there is in, the, in stock, I think, in the store. I open up the freezer and there's all kinds of ice cream and just tons of ice cream bars and sweet rolls. And, I mean, then you go to the refrigerator and there's everything else and then the pantry and there's, it just is incredible. And it would be a lot more enjoyable some days to do that. But I know that there's a consequence for doing that, and I don't really want it. <laughs> because the benefit is worth it, isn't it? The blood pressure is a little bit lower. The pulse rate's keeping a little bit lower. The middle isn't getting quite as large as it could. You feel more alert and healthy when you exercise. And in addition to that, I have three teenagers and one preteen, so you can understand all the motivations of why it's important to do what we can do to be in good shape. We know from the scriptures that Paul says this himself. He says that exercise has some benefits. And there's goodness in that. But what about the pain that we don't choose? The illness, 
the disease, the loss of the job, or the loss of a loved one. And that's what people might say, and you might be questioned to say, well, where's the gain there? Is the gain really worth that pain in that situation? Romans chapter 5, let's just go back one or two books. 1 Corinthians, and then we go to Romans. Romans chapter 5. And this is just really a couple of passages that we're looking at today that address this subject. There's a lot more. But chapter 5, verse 3 in Romans, Paul says, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Meditate on that. If you're going to be like a cow, be like a cow in this context. Chew on that, and chew on that, and chew on that, of what Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4 says. Even if you do that today, we rejoice in our sufferings. And like I said, not because Paul had some kind of morbid interest in saying, I enjoy suffering. Nobody does. But because of what it produces and the benefits for it. And lastly, God allows this to take place in our lives to unite us. Let's just go back one more book to 1 Corinthians. Go forward to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. So maybe the puzzle isn't completely figured out, and I don't believe it ever will be in our lives until we get to heaven. But if it helps us to see today that God allows pain and suffering because he wants to alert us to sin, he wants to direct us to himself, he wants to shape us to become more and more, and this is the big picture, to become more and more like his son. So that we don't become bitter, he wants us to become better. He wants us to become more like Jesus. And he knows that that often pain and suffering is how he's going to accomplish that in you and I. But lastly, he does it to unite us. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. So that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern. Notice that word, concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. This is a wonderful truth in Scripture that you are, as a Christian today, part of the body of Christ. Christ is our head, and we are members of it. And the interesting thing is, and God is in his... Again, his infinite wisdom is able to figure this out for us, and we get it, that pain and suffering seem to have this special ability to show us how much we need each other, don't they? In a funny kind of way, I feel closer to my brothers and sisters at my home assembly over the last two weeks than I did prior to this news because... As a family, and like you here are a family, and I'm an extension of your family because I'm a brother in Christ, but we're sharing in the grief together. 
And in a sense, it's funny, some of the stuff that was a problem before, some of maybe the bitterness and some of the irritations about each other and some of the tendency to kind of want to be independent and go it alone and just kind of live in your own little world when another one of your family members suffers and, you, you, and it's a good thing that you feel concerned for them and you want to be there to comfort and to be, to be there. There were over 600 people at this funeral uh, last Wednesday. And many of them were from Redwood Christian High School because he was a senior, but many, many, many from the church. I guess everybody got the day off and they were there. The place was overflowing. There was no more room. There was absolutely no more room. And it was a, from talking to them, what a comforting thing it was to, for them to say that they, they saw the, the love and the concern that the, the body had for them and had for their family. And that brought tremendous comfort when we have that kind of uh, concern for each other. And this truth becomes very real. And Galatians says that we are to, you know, be those who are burdened. Be there for them. This is practical Christianity in action. To share the burden, whatever the pain is. The temptation is to want to run away from somebody who is experiencing that type of grief or suffering in whatever context it is. But God says, don't do that. Show concern, whether it's a card, or it's a telephone call, or it's a meal, or it's just some tap on the shoulder, some expression that says, I'm praying for you. This is what it's all about. And lastly, as we close, let's just go to 2 Corinthians. So I'm not moving you too far around here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I hope you understand this as well. This is a truth that is getting um, deep inside you. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. See, this is why it's so important. It tells us, this passage of Scripture, is that we have something valuable to offer each other. Because you may have been in the very situation, whatever that is, that that brother or sister is going through. You have insights. You have wisdom from it that you can share. And so we're in a sense, this, as being part of the body of Christ, we have this give and take. We're going to receive the blessing from our brothers and sisters who show concern for us. And we, in turn can show concern for our brothers and sisters. And everybody benefits in that kind of situation to unite us. And you think about who has helped you in your suffering. I suggest it was somebody probably who was quiet, who was understanding, who listened more than they talked, and listened more than they offered all the advice. Maybe there's a time and a place for that, but maybe it's not right at the time when you have your first initial visit. People have said that they appreciate the one who shows they are concerned by being present, by holding their hand, and as I said, by a hug, or even that shared lump in the throat. When we went to go with this couple, we ended up our time in prayer. And my wife, who feels things very deeply, I wish I had more of that, felt their pain very deeply and was weeping as she prayed. And that caused the mother to begin weeping. 
And there was this incredible, intense emotion. And not only that, but if you can imagine what the service was like. We were, just, we were singing at it, Cindy and I and another couple. And we were listening to people come up and share for about 10 or 12 people got up and shared for like three to five minutes. And there was so much, so much grief mixed with joy that it was probably the most draining two hours that I think I've ever to date experienced. But there was a lot of shared lumps and there was a lot of tears and it all was uniting one another. And this is the advantage that we have in the body of Christ that God allows us to even allow us to be more united. And for some of those petty things that divide us to just kind of go away in the wind. Well, we're out of time. But really the point is, is that, and I trust you've got it today, we cry out sometimes for complete answers. God offers himself instead. We know that we can trust him. And if you're there today, you know that you can trust him. So therefore, you don't need even full explanations as to why God is doing what he's doing. It's enough for you and I to know it's not meaningless, whatever he's allowing us to go through. It's enough to know that God is still on his throne and he cares deeply about you. And you and I know today, and I trust everyone in this room knows today, the greatest evidence of God's concern that he showed for you and I can be found by looking at Jesus Christ. Because God loved our suffering world so much that he sent his son to agonize and to die for us and to free us from eternal sorrow. That's a wonderful thing today. Because of him, we can avoid the worst, the worst of all pain. And that's eternal separation from a living God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you for your death for us. We want to thank you that you did agonize so that we can know joy and hope and a relationship with your Father, with you and the Spirit, and we can know that we're going to live forever in eternity with all our sins forgiven because of the pain and suffering you went through. Lord, in the meantime, our desire in our, our, desire in our life is to become more and more like you. And Lord, we pray that you will help us to have an eternal perspective when you allow suffering for all the various reasons you do to come into our lives. We pray we will not be those who will wilt, will collapse, or would ever question or blame or curse you, Lord. We pray we'll be those who will praise you in the midst of the suffering. And like I said, Lord, we'll become more like you. We just pray for your help. These are difficult truths, Lord. We need we need you to really get this into our hearts and our heads. And I would ask you just to deepen this in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.